Thank you um, again for being here and uh, just the opportunity to, to worship uh, together um, and uh, to now to open God's Word. I, I want to take a minute before before we begin just to acknowledge as we move into, in, into June, uh, which is pretty wild to think that we're uh, officially at June, uh, that... <clears throat> Uh, we are heading into this summer, uh, not casually, but uh, Lord willing, with an intentionality to uh, to really um, be there as our community uh, opens back up. We want to be there to bless and serve uh, and uh, to connect with people, to share the gospel, uh, and to see God work in and through us. Uh, this, this week, you should have gotten an email um, regarding uh, our summer plans, and I just want to uh, kind of take a minute to uh, to to acknowledge some of the details of that. One of the, the two things that we desire to do this summer um, is, uh, is, is one, to, to cultivate missional rhythms in our, uh, in our daily life. Um, we, we really believe that the mission that God's called us to isn't defined by events uh, and by just doing more, um, but it's really defined by us being who God's called us to be in the places that he's put us and with the people that he's put us around. Uh, you'll you'll hear me say that over and over again, and I'm I'm not trying to be redundant, but but I think I just need to remind myself of it that God hasn't gotten our address wrong. Uh, thank you, Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, that God uh, hasn't put the people that He's put around us by accident either. Um, that that's where God's put us, and that's the mission that God has for us as we seek to to be a family, not just like a family, but at TCC we are a family of missionaries. Uh, living intentionally with the gospel and as servants, seeking to draw near to those around us and love them uh, as we seek to declare and display the gospel. And so we want to cultivate missional rhythms. And, and tangibly, we don't want to just talk about that in the abstract, but we want to we put some content before you um, so that you can think and chew on it. And then we want to have some time to discuss together uh, throughout the summer. So in June, we have five Wednesdays in June and on three of those Wednesdays within our small group context, sometimes we'll uh, be together like this Wednesday. We'll be at actually Gallup Park for our first uh, time together, the first Wednesday of the month hanging out. But we'll instead of just hanging out and talking the whole time, we'll have some time uh, to discuss and, uh, and, and kind of equip uh, through our content. We want to look at what it means to know our neighbors. We want to look at what it means to share our faith. Uh, what it looks like to, to cultivate um, some missional rhythms, what we're going to call the blessed missional rhythms. Uh, we'll unpack all of that. And we decided rather than uh, to kind of come on Wednesday night and get a bunch of teaching um, and equipping, that we wanted to put it in your hands for you to, to, to kind of walk through at your own pace. And so um, there's a, a resource uh, that we have access to called Pathright. It's just kind of an online platform for you to read the content, watch some content on your own. I think if you give an hour, uh, each week, you'll be able to cover the content uh, that's there and then come uh, to discuss. The, again, the purpose of this isn't to give you homework during the summer. I know some of you are like, I've already got enough things to catch up on. Um, but we want to give you something to kind of discover and reflect on it on your own and then come to discuss. So um, some of you guys have been a part of those reverse classes where you watch the content ahead of time and then you go to the lab. Uh, that's what this is. It's an equipping lab, if you will, where we're coming together to really work out what we're talking. And so that'll be three Wednesdays in June. And then two of the Wednesdays in June, uh, we're going to actually just hit the ground. We're going to prayer walk and canvas. 
uh, on the second uh, Wednesday in June and on the fourth, fourth Wednesday uh, in June, we're actually going to go up on campus and in downtown uh, to do some spiritual interest surveys and some evangelism uh, of just um, uh, just going out and, and asking the Lord to open some doors and opportunities for us to share the gospel. We'll have our Summerlink team here by that point, and they'll be joining us. They'll be doing that on a weekly basis uh, on campus. And so uh, we'll have an opportunity to do that with them. Uh, maybe you're thinking to yourself, Michael, you're nuts if you think I'm going to go talk to a random person uh, on campus uh, about Jesus. Um, and uh, that's okay. You can come and just watch. Um, and then uh, as you watch, um, you perhaps might be surprised to see how God uh, gives you the, the openness and the boldness uh, to engage in some of those conversations. Um, and so we'll talk through uh, all of that. But that's that's really the first part of the equipping that we want to do in June. There's some other content that we'll look at later in July and August that we'll talk about over the next few weeks. But the goal and the desire in all of that uh, is is to to equip our minds as well as to equip our, our heart and our hands uh, to be about living missionally, uh, which means living intentionally with the gospel and the places that God has put us and the people that he's put us around. That's the first thing. The second piece this summer that we want to do is we want to we want to serve our community. You know, it, it was uh, a little over a year and a half ago when we launched uh, TCC. On one hand, that seems like an eternity. And just the other day, it seems like we were just down the road at Bile Elementary Meeting. Uh, before we had our first service, we said as a church plan, as a launch team, that we wanted to be a church that was known for serving before we ever had our first service. <clears throat> and by God's grace, I think that that was true of us as we served our community. Uh, as a church, we believe that God's called us uh, not just to seek our own good, to build up the body, uh, but to seek the good of our city and to seek the good of our community by tangibly, with no strings attached, loving and serving people in our community with the desire uh, to display the love of Christ uh, in the way that we serve. And so uh, we're going to be doing some park outreaches and um, and on the 4th of July, a block party, as well as worship outside on the 4th of July. This year, the 4th of July is on a Sunday. Uh, and so we'll, we'll worship outside at the park and, and do a block party and some different outreaches that uh, we'll just seek to tangibly bless and uh, care for people. We have a backyard Bible camp that we'll be doing uh, in our community that we'll be inviting others to as well. And then the, uh, the one uh, other date that I really want to put on your calendar is Serve A2I, Serve Ann Arbor and Ipsy. Uh, we'll be partnering up with City of Ann Arbor and the City of Ypsilanti, nonprofits in our community, uh, as well as small businesses in our community with this simple offer. Hey, no strings attached. What can we do for you? Um, and after the initial conversation uh, goes of like, what do you really mean that? Like, what's the what's the hidden deal? Like, is this bait and switch, switch and bait, whatever one that is? Uh, how does this work? That's really no strings attached. And um, in 2019, we didn't get to do it last year because of COVID. Uh, we were able to serve um, over a dozen different entities, uh, city, nonprofit, small businesses, uh, just to tangibly bless and love on our community. And so that's July 21st to the 25th. Uh, that'll culminate with a, a celebration and worship outside as well. Uh, we'll have some of our partners uh, that support us as a church uh, that'll come and be a part of that with us. Uh, but it's not just something that we want others to come in and serve us. I want to ask you uh, to make it a priority to serve, whether it's taking time off to be a part of that week, uh, serving in the evening, especially on the weekends. Uh, we're excited to see how God uh, uses us 
uh, as we cultivate missional rhythms and as we serve in our community. Um, and so maybe as you look at those dates and process all of that, uh, our desire isn't to, to overwhelm you with a bunch of stuff. We've tried to keep a lot in the normal flow of our Wednesdays uh, with a few serve opportunities in July, uh, with, with August being a time where we're going to be doing some other uh, canvassing and, and things like that as we gear up for the fall. Um, and so we, we want uh, to see God work in us. This is a time, I believe, for us in our community and for us as a church, not to hold back and wait and see how things uh, unfold and open up, uh, but for us to press ahead faithfully, being there to serve and love our community and to share the gospel. And so I'm excited to see what God does uh, and how he works in and through us. So uh, just a, a word for you as we think about what's ahead uh, over the course of this summer. Well, today we're going to continue uh, in our study in the Minor Prophets, um, looking at God Speaks, Hope in the Darkness. And we're going to be in uh, Zephaniah. Uh, this is the ninth of the twelve uh, prophets. So we've been uh, going through um, <clears throat> each of these Minor Prophets one week at a time, looking at how God raises up His prophets, His messengers, to speak His word to His people, often who find themselves in the darkness of suffering, and the darkness of judgment, uh, or even the, uh, the looming judgment that God promises to bring, and how God speaks uh, a message of repentance as well as a message of hope of His redemption and His restoration. And so, Zephaniah, if you go to Matthew and just flip back a few pages, we're that far into the Old Testament, just flip back a few pages and you'll come to Zephaniah. Um, <clears throat> in some ways, as uh, we come to the book of Zephaniah, I haven't felt this way until this week. Uh, a lot of the prophets, you kind of feel like these books aren't as well traversed, you know, for us. Uh, I don't know if you've spent much time reading them before uh, we've walked through them together. Uh, but <clears throat> uh, they, they tend to, uh, if you're just reading them on the surface level, you tend to feel like maybe the message is the same, right? Like God's going to judge, uh, you better repent. And if you do, there's the hope of redemption and uh, and salvation. Um, and, and as I got to Zephaniah, I kind of was like, Lord, I feel like I've said this before. Um, I feel like we, we said this last week and the week before, and maybe you heard it another week. And, and, and as you're reading through it, it's easy sometimes as we look at God's word to say, well, you know, I've heard this before. But my prayer is today, uh, as I studied it, as the Lord worked in my own heart, um, uh, God's word is living and active, uh, and it always has something uh, to say to us. And I believe it has something to say to us today. Um, before we before we read further from Scripture, I want to ask you to to kind of do something with me, if you would. I want you to, to close your eyes for a moment. Um, in a moment, I want you to open them back up, so don't get too comfortable. Um, for those sitting in the shade, I know uh, <clears throat> a beautiful day. But as you close your eyes, I want you to think for a moment about your answer to this question. What one word comes to your mind to describe God's view of you? What does God say when He looks at you? <clears throat> Just one word. Maybe if you want to write it down or hold it in the back of your mind. You can open your eyes back up. <clears throat> I believe as we reflect on Zephaniah, we're going to be reminded of how God views his people, of how God sees us, and how there's uh, hope to be found in the way that God looks upon those whom he calls his own. Uh, I, I really think we spend most of our life struggling 
to, to answer that question. Um, and if God isn't the subject of the question, it's often we're worried and thinking about what somebody else thinks of us and what somebody else says about us. Uh, but the most important person uh, to worry yourself uh, about is what God says about you, how God views you and me. And uh, Zephaniah is going to give us uh, that answer. Uh, Zephaniah is a contemporary of a few other prophets. We looked at Habakkuk last week and uh, and one of the other major prophets in the Old Testament, Jeremiah. Uh, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Jeremiah are all writing in and around the same time, uh, give or take uh, probably 20 or 50 years. Uh, but Zephaniah prophesies between the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. Uh, and the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 B.C. So he's most likely somewhere around 620 B.C. And the reason we know that is because as you look at Zephaniah 1.1, it says that the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gadaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Uh, it's in the days of Josiah that Zephaniah prophesied. <clears throat> uh, Josiah became king, if you look in first, uh, 2 Kings 22 through 23, uh, he became king at age eight, um, quite uh, the young age to become king. His mom was kind of uh, the uh, the really the the queen, if you will, ruling uh, in his place uh, at the time because uh, <clears throat> uh, Ammon, the king before him, uh, who uh, reigned after Manasseh, one of the worst kings in all of the history of Judah, um, <clears throat> Ammon was killed uh, while he was a king based upon kind of a coup uh, within Judah and his son. Uh, Josiah was next in line, but not yet old enough to rule. So he was kind of a king uh, in place, but not yet functioning and ruling. And sometime during the reign of, of Josiah, probably in his early 20s, they rediscovered the law in the temple as they were going to, to gather uh, some money from the temple. And as the law is read, uh, God begins a work, uh, there's really no other way to describe it other than a work of revival in the people of Judah. Uh, as they hear the law, they're cut to the heart and they repent for their idolatry and their sin. And, and Josiah leads Judah to reestablish the right worship uh, in the temple. And uh, they, they celebrate the Passover for the first time since the day of Judges. Uh, the days of the Judges, they begin to celebrate the the Passover again, and they destroy idols. And, and God is doing this amazing work in the people of Judah at this time. And, uh, and, and though God works in an amazing way for this brief period of time, it doesn't last long because shortly after the death of Josiah, the Babylonians would come uh, and they would take Jerusalem, destroy Jerusalem, and they would uh, take the people of Judah away to Babylon. And so Zephaniah is ministering during this time. Most likely, I, I, I doesn't tell us this, but as I read Zephaniah, I can't help but think that he's probably prophesying before um, that revival took place in Judah, um, warning them about uh, God speaking through him, warning them about what was to come, the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment, and the need to humble themselves and to seek the Lord. So Zephaniah shows us, as we look at Israel, it's often true of our own lives, there's darkness uh, without, as nations uh, rage and threaten Judah, 
but there's darkness within, and perhaps that's the, the greatest danger for all of us, is not the sin out there, but the, the sin in here, our own rebellion, our own indifference, our own pride. Uh, and that's exactly what Zephaniah speaks to. <clears throat> and no sin will be overlooked, not for Judah, Jerusalem, not for the nations. Zephaniah tells us of the coming great day of the Lord's judgment. Uh, he's going to make clear, perhaps, uh, more so than any of the other prophets about the day of the Lord. But he also tells us of an unexpected joy. An unexpected joy that's found for those who humble themselves and seek the Lord. <clears throat> so as we think about how to sum up the message of Zephaniah, I think it can be summed up in two seemingly contradictory words. The first word is judgment. And the second word is joy. Judgment and joy. And Zephaniah, I believe the, the message of hope that God speaks to his people is the hope of his joy. But first, <clears throat> judgment. When we think about judgment, <clears throat> and particularly when we look at judgment in Zephaniah, God's judgment is an unsettling thing. And, and in fact, here in a moment, we'll read through a number of different references here uh, to to judgment, uh, but to just begin with, to start off, uh, it begins with an unsettling statement in chapter 1, verse 2. If you look in verse 2, God says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Perhaps not a stronger statement except in the days of Noah when God would judge the whole earth. He says that the, the day of judgment is coming in which no one will escape. The reality of God's judgment that we've talked about time and time again can be an unsettling thing. And I think it's, it's unsettling when we think about, <clears throat> we think about our, own, uh, our own culture, our own context. When we think about judgment, many people want to dismiss the idea of judgment. It makes us uncomfortable. Uh, we, we live in a day that boasts of God's love for many who uh, profess faith or profess some interest in a faith. <clears throat> but the idea of God's judgment seems contradictory to His love. Um, and, and so we, we get uncomfortable with the idea of ju God's judgment. And we struggle to believe it could be really, it could be true. Uh, I, I was thinking about some of the different ways in which people Think about judgment and the end of all things. Uh, there's, there's some uh, who look at the end uh, of all things and the idea of judgment, and they hold to a position called annihilation. The idea that when we die, we die, and that's it. Um, there's a Roman philosopher, Seneca, who said there's nothing after death, and death itself is nothing. <clears throat> a more contemporary thinker, Bertrand Russell, <clears throat> British thinker, put it this way. He said, when I die, I shall rot. There's a view that says there's no judgment at the end of it all. It's just the end of it all. There's nothing else. And so from that flows a thought that says that then in that case, there's nothing that's really animating how we live now except interest in self. Uh, that there's no outside intervention. There's no God. This is the the fundamental thinking of atheism. This is 
uh, the, uh, the concept of materialism, that all that is is what we see and what's around us, and secular humanism that says that uh, there's no outside interference, no divine working or miracles or supernatural, that this is it, and make of it what you will, because there's nothing afterwards. So some dismiss judgment, <clears throat> saying that there's nothing in the end except annihilation. Some, perhaps particularly Eastern religions and thoughts, say that we have reincarnation, the idea that the soul is rebirthed into a new body, uh, often carrying little memory from the past life, but uh, depending on the good or the bad that you do, you may have a better or lesser social position in the next life, and that, and depending on the system of thought, uh, continues on until there's some broken, until that cycle's broken through reaching some type of enlightenment or um, living enough at a high enough position that you reach, you know, some type of uh, eternal bliss and, and nirvana. Uh, so some say, yes, there's judgment, but, you know, it just goes around, comes around, goes around, comes around until you do it well enough or enlightened enough and then uh, on to eternal bliss. <clears throat> so judgment isn't denied, but it's uh, seen as cyclical. Uh, and judgment is always in this life, never in the next life. And then I think perhaps what's most tempting, even for people who profess faith in Christ to believe, is the idea of universalism. You have annihilation that says there's no judgment because there's nothing after life. There's reincarnation that says judgment takes place in this life in a cyclical kind of way. And then there's universalism uh, that holds on to some belief in God, even if it's a vague belief in God or something other that's out there, a benevolent uh, good uh, that's, that's greater than us, that's out there, and that in the end, everybody goes to heaven. No matter what you believe, no matter how you've lived, everybody gets in. Admission's free. So if you want to believe in God and follow Christ in this life, great. If you want to do something else, we're all headed up the same mountain, and we're all going to get there in the end. So there's no judgment in universalism. There's only a heaven of sorts to be gained. So that's how the world looks at the idea of judgment. But I want to submit to you that none of those three systems of thought reflect what God says, nor do any of those systems of thought reflect the character of who God is, and the hope of what God offers us. <clears throat> you see, as we look at Zephaniah, we're going to see that there's no nation or person that's exempt from God's judgment. Judgment is happening, God says. <clears throat> he brings judgment in this life in various ways. But no matter what comes in this life, if His judgment seems to be delayed, wait for it, He says. Judgment is coming. If, if you just recall, uh, as He says in verse 2, I will judge. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. There's nothing that escapes his judgment. Uh, to give you an overview of the book as a whole, I said it can be described as in two words, judgment and joy. Well, chapter one through chapter two is really God's judgment against Jerusalem, his judgment against Judah. Uh, and then in chapter two, especially starting in verse four through the end of chapter two, God speaks His judgment against a number of nations. He speaks His judgment against the Philistines and Moab and, and Assyria. And then in chapter 3, He kind of 
summarizes everything that he said. And as we heard read uh, before the message, he summarizes his judgment over Jerusalem and over the nations. But God's judgment isn't the last word for those who trust in God. Joy is the last word. And in chapter 3, at the end, in verses 9 through 20, we see God's message of hope and the hope of His joy over us and our joy in Him. Look with me to Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. I say God's judgment is unsettling. It was the actor Woody Allen who said famously, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. I think uh, as we think about God's judgment uh, and we look at what his word says, there's no way we can think about God's judgment um, as a laughing matter. Look at me. Look with me to verses 14 through 17. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. Listen to how he describes it. As a day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against fortified cities and against lofty battlements. Nothing will be safe or secure. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. There it is. Judgment is coming. A judgment that's distressing, that's unsettling. A judgment that's coming not because God is capricious, but because God is holy and we've sinned against Him. I think judgment's ultimately unsettling because God says it's certain. It's going to come. And if God's judgment is certain, then we can't ignore it. We can't deny it. We have to face it. We have to ask ourselves, are we ready for God's judgment? God's judgment is certain. And we see that throughout uh, this chapter, just as we're kind of getting this 30,000 foot view uh, of Zephaniah five times in chapter one, verses two through four. If you look there, just let your eyes fall over those verses. Over five times, God says, I will. This is His determination, His judgment. I will utterly sweep away everything. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heaven. I will cut off mankind. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut him off from the place uh, and the remnant of Baal. I will, God says, bring judgment. Be silent, verse 7 says, for the day of the Lord is near. Verse 14 that we just read says that the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. And then in chapter in chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 8, as God summarizes his message of judgment, he says, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is set. My decision is to gather nations to assemble kingdoms and to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for the fire of my jealousy, all of the earth shall be consumed. Judgment is certain. 
We know this in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, as he was speaking in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He appointed. And this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Jesus said, I came first to seek and save the lost, but I'm coming again to gather those who trust in me and to bring judgment. In Hebrews 9, 27, 28, it says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. That does away with reincarnation, with annihilation, and the next, it does away with universalism because it's Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting on Him. There is life after death. There is judgment after death. Except for those who are in Christ, there is salvation. Judgment can be unsettling because it's certain. But it doesn't have to be the the last word. But before I move on to joy, I, I just particularly want to point out how God speaks particularly to specific kinds of people who are in danger of judgment. And I think it's instructive for us. Look, look with me to chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, after God's been laying out these I will statements of His judgment. He says He's going to judge Jerusalem. He, he starts with the people of God here in chapter 1, like we mentioned, before He moves on to the nations. But But first he says, who's in danger of God's judgment? The hypocrite is in danger of God's judgment. Look look in verse 5. It says, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned their back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. The problem of Judah wasn't that they didn't attend church regularly. The problem with Judah is that they praised God with their lips and then they got up from their worship and they went and they served other gods. They rebelled against God. They professed joy and worship of God, but then they went and they turned their back from following the Lord and did not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Isn't it possible to say the right things and yet our heart be far from God? And just as God often does throughout the prophets, yes, He's going to tell us of the judgment that's coming for all those who are out there. But He says, look first at home because judgment begins with the household of God. God's going to judge His people who profess one thing and then live another way. Who are hypocrites. This is exactly what Jesus did when He showed up. He pointed to the Pharisees who knew all the right stuff. Who were so... Uh, eager and zealous to be holy that they set up extra rules so that if you broke their rules, you still wouldn't have broken the rules of God. But how a funny thing happens along the way that's hardwired into our hearts called legalism that makes us think that we can we can corner God and make Him do what we want for us because we do what we think He demands of us. We cast God in our own image and then we say, God, look what I've done for you. Shouldn't you do for me? We think that if we just do enough uh, worship, if we just do enough religious activity, 
that we can appease God and then we can get on with pleasing ourselves. I think the danger in our day is to say that we worship God, but functionally worship self and self-expression. Those are the gods that we bow down to. In essence, we bow down to ourself. In essence, we bow down to the acceptance and the, um, <clears throat> and the praise uh, of, of others. And in that hypocrisy, God says His judgment is coming, but because behind our hypocrisy is us turning our back on the Lord. So He says those who are in danger are the hypocrite who can be zealous for a certain type of religious fervor and activity, but whose lives are far from God, whose hearts are far from God. But He goes on as He's talking uh, further about the day of judgment in chapter 1. Um, he says that in verse 7, the day of, of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guest and He's going to bring His judgment. And it says in verse 12, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will He do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid to waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. God says that His people became complacent. Particularly, He's going to say here, because they had enough stuff, they were trusting in their stuff, they said, don't worry about judgment. God's not going to do bad. He's not going to do good. Just get on with living. As He goes through verses 14-17, through 17, we already read it. He says judgment's coming, but listen to verse 18. Neither silver nor gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of His jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. We become complacent when we get content with our stuff. We become complacent when we begin to, um, to think small thoughts of God. We become complacent when we get numb to our sin, indifferent to our sin. It says we're in danger of judgment when we say one thing and live another way. That's hypocrisy. But we're also in danger of judgment when we're complacent. When we say, eh, I hear what the Bible says, but nothing happened the last time I sinned. You know, I got away with it. Didn't seem to change much. I know what God's Word says, but I hear other people think differently, so what's the big deal? Live and let live. God says, be wary of your complacency. And then he goes on to say, as he describes the nations in chapter 2, he's going to go through them, and, and for time we won't talk all that he says about the Philistines or um, <clears throat> Ammon, or he goes on to talk about Moab and how he's going to bring judgment on them. Verse 15 kind of sums it up, and, and there's a few places in chapter 3. He says that those who are in danger of God's judgment, not only the hypocrite and the complacent, but the prideful. The prideful. He says that the, this is the exultant city. They lived securely. And notice, notice our problem is sometimes what we're saying to ourselves. Did you notice what the, the complacent said? They said, God will neither do ill or, uh, or won't do ill. Notice what they say here. The prideful say in their heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. 
a liar for wild beasts, everyone who passes by her and hisses as a, and shakes his fist. God says that those who say to themselves, I'm self-sufficient, will be undone. Those who say, I am, and there is no one else. Those who say, I've got this. I'm sufficient in and of myself. God says they will be brought low. In chapter 3, as God uh, once more summarizes His judgment to come, God says as He warned His people of judgment that was coming, He he thought, surely, verse 7, you will fear Me and you will accept correction. I've had this before with, with my own children as I've tried to correct them. I'm like, surely you're going to listen to Me. You know, I, I've, I've had this happen with both of my children, or my older two. I've said to them, either do what you're told or you're going to have consequences. Do you want to sit there and enjoy your meal and have dessert or do you want consequences? And you know what they choose? I want consequences, Dad. I'm like, surely you'll receive my correction and eat the dessert. Like, it's good. I would choose dessert all day, every day. I would choose dessert over correction. I hope you would too. But the truth is, we often are like children, choosing correction. Surely I thought you would accept my correction, and then your dwelling would not be cut off. Double snow cone, right? Like, you, if you know Brian Regan, you'll appreciate that. <clears throat> According to all that I've appointed against you, but all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Oh, how in pride. We puff ourselves up against God. And we say, we know better. I am and there is no other. That's what God says of Himself. Our pride is honestly at the heart of our idolatry. He goes on in verse 11. He says, on that day in judgment, you shall not be put to shame, speaking of those who trust in the Lord, because the deeds by which you have rebelled against me, that's the mercy and grace of God. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty, prideful in my holy mountain. Are you in danger of God's judgment? Are any of the people that God has put around you the places that He's put you in? Is anyone in danger of God's judgment? It's a sobering, unsettling thought. But we have to ask ourselves, are we ready for judgment? And the good news is that judgment isn't the last word to those who look to God. Joy is. That's the second word. Judgment, joy. It's really Zephaniah 3, 9-20. through 20. I thought about just having us read 14 through 20. It would have been shorter. There's a reason I didn't, because I think the joy that comes out in verses 9 through 20, we can't fully appreciate unless we understand the certainty and the danger of God's judgment. We see two aspects of joy. Joy is our response to God. That's the really the first thing that's talked about, particularly starting in verse 14 through 16, the first part of verse 16. And then the second part of verse 16 through the end of the chapter in, in verse 20 is, uh, is God's uh, joy is God's response over us. So we have our response to God and then God's response over us. 
I want to begin with actually the second part, with God's response over us, because that's what grounds our response to God. Look with me to uh, verse 17. It's been said that Zephaniah 3.17 is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Now, it would have been great if it was Zephaniah 3.16, um, so it could be the same. But Zephaniah 3.17 uh, is the, the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. I'll let you decide. It says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. God's response over us as His people, those whom He has saved, is rejoicing. Loud rejoicing. Exalting over us with loud rejoicing. Isaiah 62.5 says the same thing. It says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so God rejoices over you. What Zephaniah 3.17 is saying is that God not only loves you, He enjoys you. He not only loves you, He enjoys you. And I heard it put this way. This isn't original to me, but someone said our most public declaration about God, that He loves us, that's, that's what fills maybe 50% of our worship songs. Reflecting on, rejoicing in God's love for us. That public declaration is the one thing that we privately doubt the most. Oh, we sing of God's love. But then because of our circumstances, because of our sin, we doubt that it's really true. But it says here that the Lord rejoices over those whom He saves. He not only loves us, He enjoys us, He delights in us. And the key to, to, to knowing that we are saved, the key to knowing that God rejoices over us is, is actually start back in chapter 2, and then we'll come back to chapter 3. The key is humility. Those who are saved, those in whom the Lord rejoices, are those who are humble enough to seek the Lord. Look what it says in chapter 2. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do His just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. To escape judgment means to humble yourself and seek the Lord. But look in chapter 3. It says after God's part of God's judgment on Israel is that He scattered them, right? He scattered them into Assyria in 722 B.C. And He's warning them of what's to come in Babylon when He scatters them into Babylon. And they're all spread out. And, and God's judgment against those who don't know Him, He's going to gather them and judge them. But those who do, He's going to gather them from all the nations. He's going to purify their speech so that they all call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. He's going to do this, calling His worshipers from all over. He's going to bring them together. And that He says in verse 12, I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. And notice what the humble do. The humble seek refuge in the name of the Lord. It's in humility that we seek refuge in God that escapes us from judgment as well as leads us to enjoy God and God to delight in us. 
it almost seems too good to be true that God rejoices over us. That He sings over us. <clears throat> I, I'm not a particularly gifted singer. <clears throat> uh, I've said this to, to you guys before. I, I, I barely remember the words you know, to some of my favorite songs. Um, like sometimes I'm singing and it's like my favorite song of worship. And I'm like stumbling over the words. I don't know. I can read it and memorize it half the time, but I can't sing it and keep track of the words. But as um, as I've grown as a father, one of the things that Emily has influenced me in is all of our kids have a song um, that she's sung over them since they're a kid. And because I can't remember, she has a song for each of them. I have one song for all of them, right? Like, that's all I got, you know, just one song. I've memorized the lyrics and I'm seven years in and I'm doing great, you know. Um, but one of the things that I love most is at the end of our day, as we put our kids to bed, there's always singing over our kids. And early on, it's great with little children because they can't, they don't know enough about singing to make fun of you yet. My oldest now probably, you know, could poke holes in my singing if she wanted, but there's something about singing over them. It's not about my delight in them. I'm often trying to remind them of the goodness of, of God's grace and his delight in them. But just as we sing over them at the end of the day and we're reminded of God's love, I, I just, as I read Zephaniah this week, I thought about all the times as I've sung to my kids and prayed that they might know the words that we sing in their own hearts, how God does that over His children is what Zephaniah 3 says. That He sings over us. That He rejoices over us. If you're in Christ, I don't know what you thought at the beginning of this message, what one word came to your mind, but if you're in Christ, what God says of you, not only says of you, but sings over you is joy. He rejoices. And as I read this and I was just trying to search for words, as often as the case, there are other people who say it better than me. And Charles Spurgeon, as he reflected on Zephaniah 3, he says, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. Imperfect though they may be, I resonate with that. Imperfect though I may be, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him. He sees them as they are to be, so He rejoices over them, even when they cannot rejoice in themselves. I don't know if you've been there. God rejoices over us, even when we can't rejoice in ourselves. When, you, when your face is blurred with tears, your eyes are red with weeping, and your heart heavy with sorrow for sin, the great Father is rejoicing over you. The prodigal son ran back to his father with tears in his eyes, but the father received him with joy and threw a feast. He threw a feast for his son. And so while we question, doubt, sorrow, and tremble all the while, God sees the end from the beginning and he knows what will come out of the present darkness and therefore rejoices. Another commentator says we must banish from our minds forever any thought that God admits us begrudgingly to himself, that he saves us begrudgingly as if there's a loophole that God did a workaround and he let us in just this one time. You know, uh, it's, you know, like we got a special deal at AT&T, you know, that other people didn't get. I think that's the commercial. It's, it's not like a loophole that God found for us. God himself the righteous and holy judge puts Christ forward in our place for our sin. And that when we trust in Him, He welcomes us and throws a feast 
He puts a ring on our finger. He kills the fatted calf. He throws a party. He shouts in rejoicing. And He leads in the festal dance. He leads the party in rejoicing over His child coming home. God delights to save, and He delights in those whom He saves. It's interesting to think about this, that He looked at creation and He rested. He looks at those whom He saves and He sings. He delights. And the reason that God can delight in us is not because He worships us. He can delight in us because in saving us, He reveals His glory. In saving us, He reveals the fullness of who He is because He didn't pass over judgment. He poured out judgment on Jesus in our place. And He gives us real and lasting joy when we take refuge in Him. Joy is the final word for those who trust in God. And Zephaniah says that our response to God in verse 14, Sing aloud, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Rejoice in the forgiveness of sin. He's cleared away your enemies. Rejoice in His protection. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. Rejoice in His presence. You shall never again fear evil. Our response to God's joy over us is joy in Him. And not only joy, but He goes on to say, On that day it shall be said in Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. If God rejoices over us, what do we have to fear? Not only fear not, but press on. Do not grow weak and weary. Let not your hands grow weak, He says. So when we feel overwhelmed, whether it's because of our circumstances or because of our sin, God says, let not your hands be weak. Press on and worship. God is worthy of our worship even when we don't see His hand at work or even when we don't feel His presence near us. Rejoice in Him. Press on and worship. But to, to conclude, to wrap up our time, press on in a surprising way. I believe what Zephaniah, as we connect Zephaniah to what God says in the New Testament, He's actually telling us as we respond to joy in God that we press on, we grow not weary or let our hands be weak, but we press on, I believe, actually in mission. You say, Michael, how do you get there? Look at chapter 3, verse 9. God says that at the end of time, He's going to change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. What he's saying in Zephaniah 3, 9, and 10 is an undoing of Babel when the speech of the people was confused and they were scattered throughout the earth. God says He's going to do this at the end of time. Well, in the middle of time, when Jesus came at Pentecost, which we celebrated last week, that's the spider, uh, <clears throat> in Acts chapter 2, that wasn't part of my notes, uh, in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, it says that there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, all there from different languages. Christ had just been 
crucified and raised from the dead and 40 days had passed. And it says at the, at the sound of the multitude, as they came together, they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak as in his own language, as if God, through dropping uh, fire down from heaven, was purifying the speech of the people so that everyone heard the message in his own language. They thought they were drunk. And Peter said, the wine isn't that good in the morning. We're not drunk. Here's what's going on in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear the words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested you by God through mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him from the dead, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And he unpacked it from the Old Testament, how this was the case. And it says in verse 33 that the people heard it and they said, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The mission of the church was launched at Pentecost as the Spirit of God came, empowering God's people to declare the mighty work of God in Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection. And at the end, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, and we'll close with this, we go from Pentecost to the throne room of heaven. As John looks ahead to what's to come, and it says in verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. We're standing there before the throne and before the Lamb who was clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to His Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures, they fell on their face and they said, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Here's, here's what I'm saying. What Zephaniah 3.9 said God was going to do, God's going to complete it one day. Revelation 7.9 says, when people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered around the throne to say salvation belongs to the Lord our God. And the way we get from Zephaniah 3 to Revelation 7-9 is God, by the power of His Spirit, came to call the church to bear witness to Jesus. God rejoices over us. He tells us not to fear. He tells us not to grow weary, but to press on in worship and to press on in mission. And it's a joy-filled mission. A mission that we have received and that we, we have because we've humbly taken refuge in God. And all we can do is invite others to take refuge in Him too. Let's pray.